Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. A new beginning. Hear these words from the word. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where your foot shall trod, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, remind us of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, not only of this world, but also in control of the destiny of his people that he has placed his purpose in. It opens up with this catastrophic announcement that produced a cataclysmic effect. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the great testimony that Moses was God's servant. God does not point out any flaws or foibles in the life of Moses, not Moses the murderer, not Moses the one given to impetuosity, that is, doing before he thinks, but Moses my servant is dead. And Moses' great testimony is found in Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. And Moses, when he was come of years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but chose rather to suffer affliction of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches of Christ of greater riches than the wealth of, of Egypt. Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And what will Israel do now? Their liberator is gone. The liberator who has brought the law of God is gone. The one who has been the corridor through which God worked his miracles on behalf of the children of Israel, whether, whether it was his taking and throwing a tree into uh, a body of water that was not fit for human consumption in that 
tree causing the water to be sweet so that the people could drink water, and all the other miracles. The one that Israel depended upon for 40 long years is now dead. And what will Israel do now? And God reminds them by his actions. I may bury my workers, but I will not bury my work. My work goes on, which is a necessary reminder for us that we are not indispensable. We are not unexpendable. We are not irreplaceable. Mm -mm. We are people that God chooses to use for his cause for a certain amount of time, and we must be faithful in living out our calling because there will be a successor, someone who will come after us, who will, as William Shakespeare would allude to, that all the world's a stage and we're merely actors, there will be another actor or actress who will replace you or replace me and will carry out the God that the, the, the calling that God has given to them. So do your work well, brothers and sisters, and know that you and I stand on the shoulders of others and we would want others to stand on our shoulders as the faithful people of God. Moses, my servant, is dead. I bury my work, but I don't bury my workers. Now you, Joshua, and all these people that I've given to you, take and go across the Jordan River and possess the land the promised land, Canaan, that I've already given to you. In fact, I'm about to give to you. What a strange way of putting it. God says, <clears throat> Joshua, you and these people arise. They've been, they've been mourning for 30 days in the plains of Moab after the loss of Moses. That's documented in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 8. Now, you and these people arise and go over the Jordan. You're not far from it. You've been wandering in the area now for almost 40 years in the longest funeral procession in history. Now, arise and go over the Jordan and possess the land that I've given to them. In fact, I'm about to give it to them. Now, God, what are you saying? Is this double talk? You've given it to them and yet you're about to give it to them. How can that be? There is great ambiguity in this God. God, this statement is enveloped within the mist of the mystery of your wisdom. What does it mean? And God is saying to us, go and possess the land that I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already given it to them. I gave it to them over 500 years ago when I told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse number 18, here are the boundaries for the land that the children of Israel will live in. I know they have to go into bondage down in Egypt for 400 years, but they're coming out. And here are the boundaries on the north, the south, the east, and the west. God is so omniscient. That is, God is such a God of knowledge that he can list the boundaries of a land that the children of Israel has not even conquered yet. Here the boundaries. I'm already giving it to them more than a half a century before they will actually possess it. This is the God who knows the end before the beginning begins. That's what Isaiah 46 and 10 says. He knows the end before the beginning begins. He writes the epilogue before he even writes the prologue. 
He has the prescription even before there is a diagnosis. No wonder Isaiah says in Isaiah 65 and 24, before you call, I will answer. That is before you even call me, I've already answered you. And while you're yet speaking, I will hear. Mm. Because God always goes before us and he announces by declaration what he's already given us. And then he says to Joshua, I'm about to give it to them. Well, now this is our part. He's given it to us, mm. but our possessing it has to do with what we do with it, with the promise. For God says, every place that the sole of your foot steps on is yours. I've already declared it. Now you've got to demonstrate it. That's yours. That's yours. That's yours. That's yours. In other words, you've got to stake your claim. You've got to possess your possession. You and I must not presume on God. It's a matter of divine human instrumentality. God does his part in terms of declaration. We do our part in terms of demonstration. We ought to march around the walls of Jericho. That's what the children of Israel will do in the sixth chapter of Joshua. One time for six days, that's six times. Seven times on the seventh day, there's 13 times. And the walls are still standing. And then they have to shout. And when they have shouted without a bulldozer or a crane, God will bring the walls down. Divine human instrumentality. We march and shout. He brings the walls down. We ought to take and roll back the stone at the Bethany Cemetery in John chapter 11. We roll back the stone. And then Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. It's a specific calling. Had he said come forth? then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have come forth. Sarah and Rachel would have come forth. Samuel would have come forth. And all the other dead saints would have come forth. But Jesus said, Lazarus! And Lazarus came forth. Lazarus must have said, hush, somebody's calling my name. It sounds like Jesus. He came out of that grave. After they loosed him of his grave clothes, he came skipping across the beaches of the Bethany Cemetery like a schoolboy on a college campus. They took and rolled back the stone. They did their part. And Jesus did his part by calling Lazarus from the dead. And there they are once again in that same dilemma. There is a dilemma in Cana of Galilee. There's a wedding there. And the wine has run out because the Jews celebrated weddings for a whole week the wine went out and uh, the word was gotten to Mary the mother of Jesus there is no wine left and Mary didn't know what Jesus was going to do but he she knew that he was unpredictable you couldn't put him in a box uh, he was a um, messiah of mystery she said whatever he says do do it and even, even though it looks uh, illogical do it even though it has never been done that way. Do it! And he told these six servants, uh, get six water pots uh, that contain 20 to 30 gallons in each pot and bring them to me. And Jesus looked at these six water pots filled with water. Of course, they didn't want water. They wanted wine. And Jesus looked at the water pots filled with wine 
And when H2O looked up and saw Jesus looking at them, water blushed in the wine. Well, that's the way he is. He is the uncalculating Christ. But we must do our part. I'm about to give it to them. In fact, I've already given it to them. I've given it to them by declaration. They must take it by demonstration. And too many of us are waiting for God to do everything. Don't you and I know that God is waiting for us to do our part? How long are you going to sit still rather than to claim the spiritual territory, the relational territory, and the territory of your calling that God has placed in you? Well, God gives them that guarantee. Joshua, arise, you and these people, and go over the Jordan and possess the land I'm about to give to them. In fact, I've already given it to them. Then he gives them the boundaries, the same boundaries that he had given to Abraham over a half a century, uh, over a half millennium ago in Genesis 15 and 8. The boundaries of the north, the south, the east, and the west. And then he says in verse 5, no man, no one will be able to stand up against you, Joshua, all the days of your life. No one. In other words, God is saying to him, you will have or you can have an undefeated record. You can be one in which there is no loss on the right side of your column, just wins. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. And that's why Joshua has a real problem in Joshua chapter 7. When Israel fights against Ai, which only had 12,000 people altogether in its city, was not as um, threatening as the city of Jericho with its massive walls, walls so wide that we're told by Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, that two chariots could ride side by side along each other on top of the walls without falling over on either side. And so the Israelites thought that since they had won the battle of Jericho, that they didn't need the whole army to go up against Ai, a much smaller city. They wound up losing that battle and losing 36 men, which if they were married, that would leave 36 widows and children who had no fathers and parents who no longer had a son. And Joshua is upset with God in that seventh chapter of the book of Joshua. He says to God, why have you allowed us to lose? Why would you bring us to this point where we would be embarrassed and fall underneath the weight of a loss when you said in Joshua 1 and 5, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. Why did we lose? Well, this is a conditional promise from God. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life as long as you are carrying out my purpose, you will have my presence. But when you stop carrying out my purpose, you not only no longer have my presence, but you no longer have my power. 
Joshua did not know because he didn't consult with the Lord before there was a battle at Ai. Did not know there was a man, that there was a man by the name of Achan from the tribe of Judah who had disobeyed God. Those valuables of silver and gold and bronze, those valuables that, uh, they, that were to be taken in the wind against Jericho were to be brought into the treasure of the Lord for the future building of the tabernacle and ultimately the building of the temple. And Achan took those valuables to his tent, dug a hole and hid them in his tent. And because he sinned, God said that there's going to be some corporate collateral damaged. And it was no longer Achan sinned, but Israel has sinned. And when there was sin, God brought a stop to their winning streak, and they lost at Ai. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Condition upon your obedience. Brothers and sisters, we wonder sometimes why we are not more effective, why we are not more powerful, why we are not gaining more ground as a church, as an individual Christian. Could it be that we've taken and hid some things in our tents? that has caused us to lose ground and to lose battles. And here God has promised Joshua that no one will be able to stand up against him all the days of his life as long as he and the children of Israel would be faithful. God may be speaking to us today as individuals and as a congregation to take that which is in our tent, expose them, get rid of them, present them to God in repentance so that the power of his spirit can flow through us without hindrance and without any limitation. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. What a strong word. As I, in the same way I was with Moses, I will be with you in that same way, Joshua. God was with Moses at the burning bush. And Moses takes and goes to the backside of the desert like he would probably go every day because he was letting his sheep graze and he was taking his sheep from place to place. He was the shepherd of his father-in-law, Jethro. He thought that today was just going to be a one-act play the same act that he participated in every day in terms of shepherding. But, in but instead of it being a one-act play, it became a divine drama. He came to the backside of the desert, and there was a bush, but it was a different kind of bush. Same bush, but different. This time, the bush was on fire. The berries remained red. The leaves remained green. But there was an amplification system in the bush. And Moses, remember hearing these words, Moses, Moses, stop. The ground you're standing on is holy ground, therefore take off your shoes. And God spoke to Moses in a powerful way and sent him to Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. But God was with Joshua the same way. As he was with Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, he was with Joshua in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. And there's Joshua surveying the, the area in the vicinity of Jericho so that he would know what he had to fight against. 
But during his surveillance, which he did it unilaterally, no one else was around, uh, there was someone who resembled a commander who had his sword in his sheath and pulled it out and had it drawn. And Joshua asked, are you for us or against us? And this commander said, neither. It's the wrong question is what he was saying. I'm not for you or against you. I'm here to take over. I'm the captain of the Lord's army. And Joshua recognized that this was not human presence. This was divine presence, what we would call a Christophany. That is, Christ of the New Testament making an Old Testament appearance. Or it is a theophany, God taking and enrobing himself in the form of a human being. And Joshua, the Bible says, bowed down to him in an act of worship. That's why Joshua knew this was not just human presence. This was divine presence. And that presence said to Joshua what God said to Moses. Take off the shoes from your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. God was with Moses at the Red Sea where the waters had been flowing. There's no way they could have gotten over to the other side, that is the children of Israel, after they were allowed to leave Egypt. There was no boat to take them over. There was no ferry. There was no bridge. There was nothing except God. And Moses had his rod which he was able to stretch. God opened up the Red Sea and the children of Israel marched over on dry ground without getting their feet wet as if they were walking through an interstate. And those watery walls of the Red Sea stood up in attention as they marched over. Not one was drowned. God was with Moses. But God will be with Joshua in that fourth chapter of Joshua when God will dam up the Jordan River so that the walls will stand up that were coming from the north and the rest of the water would flow down. When the priest took and stepped on the very edge of the Jordan River, the water stopped flowing and the children of Israel, all one and a half million plus of them crossed over on dry ground. God was with Moses when God would allow a pillar of fire to be between the children of Israel, the back part, the rear part, and the front part of the Egyptian, so that the children of Israel will have at night light, but the Egyptians will be in darkness. God brought light in the midst of darkness, and God would be with Joshua in that ninth chapter and 10th chapter, particularly of the book of Joshua. For there, Joshua is pursuing this five-nation coalition and uh, attempting to catch up with him, he knew that he needed more sunlight because the darkness was getting ready to come. And he stood there in his prayer to God that God would affect the elements and said, O sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon upon the valley of Ajalon. And God took and put the world on daylight savings time, held back the moon held back the queen of the night and let the sun work overtime. There had never been a day like that before until, of course, 1,400 years later when Jesus Christ would come. And at 12 noon, 
Uh, the Bible teaches us that midday would become like midnight. So from 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it was dark. So God was with Joshua like he was with Moses at the Red Sea, at the burning bush, and at this matter of extending the day and giving them light even in the midst of their darkness. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. This word is a, an anticipation of another word that Paul will give some nearly 1,400 years later. It's found in Hebrews 13 and 5, where Paul says, quoting verse 5 of chapter 1 of Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God promises us his presence, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And we may not ever, may, may not always, may not always feel his presence. We may not always see him present. He may not always be doing things. But if we can trust that since he has put the Holy Spirit in us and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he never leaves us. Nor, he, nor does he forsake us. I've seen the lightning flashing. I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sin's breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus telling me to still fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. God is preparing his leader to lead his people in verses 6 to verse number 9. You notice in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9, there is this Trinitarian uh, direction and Trinitarian word that God gives in verse 6. Be strong and courageous in verse 7. Be very strong and courageous in verse 9. Be strong and courageous three times. In Hebrew, of course, we don't have exclamation points there in the original text. But when something needed to be emphasized, then it would be emphasized by repeating it again, twice. Like the call of Moses. Moses, Moses. Like the call of Samuel. Samuel, Samuel. Like Jesus' words to Nicodemus, verily, verily, or truly, truly. Here is not just a twice repeated statement. It's a thrice repeated statement. Be strong and courageous, verse 6. Be very strong and courageous, verse 7. Be strong and courageous, verse number 9. God has to keep reminding us again, I say. Has to keep reminding us because we either get amnesia or we are hard of hearing. And he's reminding us to be strong and courageous. Not in ourselves. He has to tell us to be strong and courageous because we are not innately, intrinsically, and naturally strong and courageous. We are not. We put forth the front. But there are forces and there are circumstances in this world that we're not able to handle on our own. And he tells us to be strong and courageous because he knows that our strength and our courage they lie in him. Be strong and very 
courageous. And then he says, do it because you need to get to this place where you neither turn to the left or to the right. In other words, be focused on me. I am your strength. I am the source of your courage. Don't take your eyes off of me. Don't look to the left or to the right. I remember when my wife and I were um, vacationing. We went to Grand Canyon, among other places. And uh, the, when I first saw the expanse of that uh, canyon, the song that filled my mind was, How Great Thou Art, O Lord my God. When I in awesome wonder consider all the world thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the roaring thunder, thy power throughout the universe display. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. They had all kinds of excursions there. One of them was going down to the very bottom of the canyon. And you had to get on a mule and ride the mule and the mule would go around all these curves and down, 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 down. And uh, the path around these curves, in some instances, could not have been much more, much wider than this. Now, I have faith in God, Lord, but I didn't have faith in that mule. And uh, I, I saw people go down and people come up. And had the mule turned to the left or to the right and made one slip, then um, I guess we could have sung, Old Lang Syne, may all acquaintance be forgot." And so, if that mule could be that focus on where it was going to avoid slipping and falling over the edge to end its life and the life that was on its back, then why can't we trust God to carry us to our destiny, to the places that he's called us to go to? Don't turn from the left or to the right. And then he says... This word, I want you to meditate on it day and night. This word, not necessarily the book itself, the pages, the scroll, but thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Meditate on it. Uh, meditation is a form of, uh, of, um, mess, of, of masticating. Uh, that is to masticate is to chew, chew it. And cows would chew and spit out what they had chewed and then take and chew it again and swallow it to get all the nutrients in. This word, meditate on it, chew it, masticate it, chew it, regurgitate it, and then re-eat it again. Because the more you know about the Bible, the more you realize how much you don't know about the Bible. And D.L. Moody, the, the great evangelist, has said, it's not how many times you've gone through the Bible that counts. What counts is how many times the Bible has gone through you. And the closer you get to God, the more you realize how far away you are from him. So keep on meditating on it. It reminds us of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks by the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he 
meditate, not just in the morning, but day and night. This word becomes so important that it is more important than, as David would say, our necessary food. And then to bring this section of God preparing Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, I want you to get to this place that you trust me even though there are objects around you that would cause you to fear. Once again, he says in verse 9, he says, be strong and of, very, and of, of, and of great courage. He tells him, don't be terrified, which means don't fear. Fear. Fear is natural, but faith overcomes fear. So that the Swiss theologian Karl Barth would say that courage is fear on his knees saying its prayers. You can tell God, I'm fearful, but increase my faith so that my faith cannot distance my fear so that I can recognize that there's nothing too hard for you to do. Fear not. I'm told that there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, and if there are 365 fear nots in the Bible, there's a fear not for every day of the year. 365 days in the year, 365 fear nots, one fear not for every day. The very first time the words fear not appear in the Bible is in Genesis 15 and 1, where the Lord says to Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, or Abram, because of his covenant of name not being given yet. For I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm your shield, Abraham. No need to fear. Fear not. I've got your front. I've got your front. Nothing can get to you unless I permit it. I'm not going to give a shield to you. I'm going to be your shield. And as we would sing in our little church when I was a little boy at Rose Chapel Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, he's so high that you can't go over him. And he's so low that you can't come under him. And he's so wide that you can't go around him. You got to come in at the door. And when God takes and moves to allow Satan to challenge and attack us, he's got to get permission from God. As the book of Job tells us, God had to approve Satan attacking him. And limiting his attack by saying you can do anything you want to do to him, but you can't take his life. And whatever God permits to come into our lives, he has a purpose to promote. And he will promote his cause even when we don't see that he's after something. He may let you and I, like Joseph, go down to Egypt to recognize later on that even though our brothers defrauded us, betrayed us, what they meant in us for evil, God meant in us for good to save many people alive. Or as the Danish theologian Søren Kierkegaard once said, life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards, which really means some things you don't understand about the purpose of God until you live long enough and you look back and you can see that there was a blessed and necessary moment. God says, I got your front, don't be terrified. And then I've got your back, fear not. Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy follows after me. 
So God says, I got your back. Goodness and mercy follows after me. In fact, when I stand before God and God declares I'm blameless, I'm sinless, I'm faultless, and I wonder how can that be because I know all the stuff in my past, things that I'm ashamed of, things that I know let God down. God says, you're blameless, you're faultless, you're sinless, and God makes that statement to me, and I wonder how that can be because of my past sins. But goodness and mercy, since God has my back, were picking up after me, cleaning up, sweeping away all that mess, all that sin. So when I stand before God, I'm dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And then God says, I've got, your, got the keys. You don't have to fear. And says to John, that great disciple who is on the island of Patmos and receiving the book of Revelation, in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, John, fear not. I've got the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Therefore, you don't have to fear. I've got your front, I've got your back, and I've got the keys. And he closes out by saying, don't be discouraged because I am with you wherever you go. I am. God is the only one who can simultaneously hold the past, the present, and the future together. In fact, when Moses asked the Lord in the third chapter of Ezekiel, of uh, Exodus rather, uh, Lord, who shall I say sent me when I go to tell Pharaoh to let your people go? Because they're going to ask me. Uh, they're going to say to me, look, this God we don't have in the directory of gods, the directory of deities down here. Uh, we know about Ra, the sun god, and we know about Isis and all the other gods, but we don't have this God in our directory. What am I to say? Tell them, Moses, I am that I am, which really means this. I am, God has always am, but I am who I was am, past. Hmm. I am who I am is, present. I know that's not the best uh, grammar, but it's the best theology. I am who I am, who I will be am. In other words, I am. I am is, I, I am was, I am is, and I am will be. Always I am because I never was and I never will be. I just, I am. Tell them, I am that I am. And some 1,400 years later, one was born. Born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that word is given in Matthew 1:23 quoting Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The I am is with us. I say to you, brothers and sisters, as I bid you adieu, to remember that God is preparing you and me for what he's preparing us for and that God is with us that God will never leave us, that God will be, go before us to make crooked places straight and rough places smooth so that we can continue the work that God has called us to do. And in that great getting up morning when we shall stand before the heavenly shore and wring the blue waters of tribulation from the hem of our garment, saints from the north, south, east, and west will meet on Hallelujah Square and bow down before the throne and give God praise for all that he's done to bring us across the Jordan River into the promised land of heaven where we shall rejoice forevermore when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. 
We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this new beginning. You're the God who is always giving us a new beginning. You're the God who has begun a good work and you will finish it. And we pray that you'll help us by your spirit to be faithful in doing what you've called us to do until the new beginning is brought to an end only to start with a beginning that shall never end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.